0: Good morning. Good morning. Happy, Lord's Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. The Lord Jesus. Is this on? Can you guys hear me out there? Yeah. I can't hear it up here now. Chris, can you turn me up a little bit? Mic test. Are you good? Okay. Everyone okay back there? Marceline you can hear me okay? All right. It's just not coming out up here somewhere. Mic test. This one comes out a lot more. Is it coming out that speaker? No. Okay. That sounds a lot better. At least for for here. well, it is the lord 's day we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and if he did not rise from the dead, we are wasting our time here, and we, have, we are of all people most to be pitied, but because He did die and rise, uh, we are not wasting our time here. we are actually laying up treasures in heaven as we seek the lord 's face and so because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 35 to 44, finishing up this chapter. So Mark twelve thirty-five. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. In the chair in front of you, there's a pew Bible. It's a brown Bible there, and if you turn to page 7.18, you'll find Mark chapter 12 on page 7.18. Hear the word of the Lord as I read Mark 12, verse 35, all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, reminding you that this is Tuesday, this story, the setting of this, of this section. It's still Tuesday. Palm Sunday was just two days ago. Jesus just entered into the, um, to the temple. He cleaned out the temple, and he's been having debates with uh, the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, and people were questioning his authority, and now we come to the end of, of at least this discussion here in um, Mark chapter 12. So turn with me now, or read with me, Mark 12:35. follow along. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says, by the Holy Spirit... The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, the front seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets they devour widows houses and say long prayers just for show these will receive harsher punishment sitting across from the temple the temple treasury jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put, put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. Our Father, you just told us this morning through Isaiah 55 that Your word does not return empty, it does not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it out. And so, Lord, as we just read your most holy and authoritative word, as we seek now to meditate on it, we pray that it would accomplish the purpose of transforming our souls. We pray that it would kill sin and confront us, that it would not only teach us true doctrine, but that it would reprove and rebuke us that it would correct us, and that it would train us in righteousness so that we might be men and women of God, competent, complete, and equipped for every good work, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. This can only come by your Holy Spirit's power, taking the word and driving it deep into our souls. And so we pray for his help because he can do what we cannot so help us, God, we pray. And we pray for any anyone here who has not yet trusted in Christ and repented from their sins, that even this morning you would open up their hearts to your word to receive Christ and to turn from their sins and even their own religion. We're looking to you now, Father, trusting your love for us, your promise to us, and your powerful design in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Even true Christians fall into the religion trap. The religion trap is where Christians or religious people generally are more concerned with how they're perceived in their religious community. More concerned with how they look towards others, more concerned with what other people are saying about them than they are concerned with what God thinks. And how they are actually in their relationship with God. The the religion trap is, it happens when we put on, and I think all of us have experienced this from time to time, when we put on a thin smile on a Sunday or whenever your religious community meets, you put on a thin smile when really you're down or discouraged or disturbed. And it's not that you don't want to, it's not... It's not merely that you're just trying to be nice, but when, you, when we get in the religion trap, we want to put forward a front. Now, it's okay to smile. Even if you're down, you know, you should smile. But uh, when you do it to, to make things look like they're not, to make it look like everything's okay, when, when you know and God knows that it's not okay. That's a religion trap. And, and not only can individual Christians and religious people who are not Christian fall into this trap, even churches can fall into this trap when they become a community of performance more than cultivating carefully a community of grace, as we spoke about a few months ago here. Many non-Christians, actually, because of this, they don't view Christianity correctly. Many non-Christians view, they don't see Christianity as this scandalous religion where God forgives guilty, wicked, evil sinners and gives them mercy when they deserve hell. A lot of people don't look at Christianity like that. Rather, they look at Christianity as a a group of self-righteous do-gooders who look down on everyone else who don't measure up to their narrow views. That might be how a non-Christian might say it. If you're not a Christian here, I wonder what you would say the essence of Christianity is. What is Christianity? Jesus' opponents here, on this Tuesday, here in Mark chapter 12, they have fallen into the religious trap, the religion trap. And it's not just this moment that they fell into it, but they are trapped by their religion that has actually replaced their, actual, their communion with God. They're devoted to their beliefs. They're devoted to their holy book. Indeed, we would call it a holy book, the Old Testament, though the Pharisees might already be honoring tradition more than we would. But they were devoted to their beliefs. They're devoted to their holy book. They're devoted to their community's way and practice of seeking God. And yet, as they're devoted to God, they're opposing the messenger of God who is standing right in front of them, speaking directly to them about who God is. You have Jesus and the scribes, Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, Jesus and the religious teachers. And here he is right in front of them, sent from God to speak to them, and yet they miss the whole point. Now this happens all the time in the world, and it even happens in churches. So we need, here's what we need, we need to stop, or we need to, not stop, we need to start, or we need to focus on, on three ways we can follow Jesus and avoid the religion trap. I think in this text, we have three components given that are interdependent in helping us avoid the religion trap and following Jesus as Lord. Okay? So that's what we're going to focus on. Because Christ is Lord of all, we want to follow Jesus and avoid the religion trap. Three components to this. Number one, verses 35 to 37, let's look at the verses here. Verse 35 says this, So, Jesus asked this question and taught in the temple complex. Now, before we move on, who's the one initiating the question here in verse 35? Who's the one asking the question? Jesus is. Now, up until this point, who was asking the questions? The Pharisees were, the scribes were, the Sadducees were. They were initiating the action. They were initiating the conversation because they were questioning and challenging Jesus to try to get him out and try to make him look less um, less acceptable than he was by the crowds. And now Jesus, remember in verse 34, we learned last week, after Jesus answered this question, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it said, no one dared ask him another question. So in the middle of the conversation, they ask these objections. They try to trap Jesus. He just avoids trap after trap after trap. Then they have no, they give up. We got nothing else to say. We got no other tricks up our sleeves We have nothing. And so Jesus says, okay, you're done with your questions. Now let me ask you a question. And what's his question in verse 35? How can the scribes, you scribes, you leaders, you lawyers who are experts in the law covenant of the Old Testament and how it applies today? How can the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand and put until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be the Messiah's son? So here's a question. Who is the Messiah? The problem is that David is calling the Messiah what? Lord. So here's point number one. If you want to avoid the religion trap and follow Jesus, you need to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Okay? That sounds very simple, but it's, it's, when we start applying it, it's actually very practical. You need to recognize, self-consciously recognize that Jesus is Lord. So if you're taking notes, that's point number one of three. Recognize Jesus as Lord, or recognize the Lord. So he calls him son of David in verse 35, where it says the scribes say that he's the son of David, and the scribes were right. It said that in 2 Samuel 7. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And God, through the prophet Nathan, says, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And the house that God was talking about was not a physical house, but a household, a dynasty. Your sons are going to sit on the throne forever and you're going to have a son and he'll be a son to me and I'll be a father to him. And I will never leave him. So there was a promise that David's son will always sit on the throne. You know the Christmas verse from Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is... Born and unto us a son is given. And then verse 7 says that uh, the dominion will be vast. or we know, the, And the government will be on his shoulders. Verse 7 says that the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this is just biblical, right? The scribes are saying the son of David is going to be the Messiah. Well, the scribes were right because Isaiah said that. And because the author of 2 Samuel said that, and if you just read Ezekiel even and Jeremiah, prophet after prophet talks about the son of David who's going to come and reign. So the scribes are right. And so Jesus says, son of David is the Messiah, right? Right. Okay. Well, verse 36, um, verse 36 says, David himself says by who? By the Holy Spirit. Now, where does David say this? In the what? Did Jesus talk to David verbally? Audibly? No. Where did David say it? In what? In the Psalms. In the scriptures, right? In the scriptures. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. But here's the point I want to point out to you now. When David wrote Psalm 110, who else is speaking, according to verse 36? David spoke by who? Say it louder. David spoke by who? By the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you read the Bible, who's speaking? The Holy Spirit, this is what we call the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that the Bible is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God, is God breathed, is inspired by God. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy ever came out by the will of men instead, or will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here's David being moved by the Holy Spirit. When when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Because the Holy Spirit speaks. And Jesus knows that, and the Pharisees should know that, and the scribes should know that. In other words, when I'm saying David said this, it's not just David saying it, it's the Holy Spirit saying it. So it has divine authority. Now we go on to the actual argument that Jesus makes. David calls, David says, here's David writing, and he says, Yahweh, the Lord That's the the name, the personal name of God. The Lord Yahweh said to my master, my Lord, sit at my right hand. So there's two different words for Lord there. But the point is that David is calling this this king to come, his Lord. But here's the problem. This Lord to come is David's descendant, his grandson or David's son. And fathers do not call their sons Lord. Lord. Not in that culture, not even in this culture. We honor our parents. You don't the honor, the honor goes one way. I mean, we respect our children, of course, right? Do not our Parents, do not provoke your children to wrath, but raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. You're accountable to God for how you parent. And yet, the honor is children, obey your parents, honor your father and your mother. It makes the Big Ten, right? One of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. So, why is David calling his son... His Lord. Is this son superior to David? That's the question. And then the secondary question that he's posing to them is and if this son is superior to David, shouldn't you be deferential towards him as well? Shouldn't you be respectful? Shouldn't you have a little respect in this little debate we're having here? And be submissive if he really if he's the Lord of David and you're supposed to be submitting to David, how much more should you, you be submitting to the Messiah? So that's the question. Is he superior to David? Well, we know from Mark 1.1 that the Christ or the Messiah is also called the what? Look at Mark 1.1. Turn there. Mark's the very first verse that opens up this whole book, this whole account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's another word for Christ? Messiah. Okay, Christ the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Then what, says, what does it say after that? The Son of? God. So the Messiah is the Son of God. So you say, is is the Messiah greater than David? Yes. Yes. Why? Because he's the Son of God. Oh, that's right. He is the Son of God, but not so fast. You got to slow down here. Not so fast. You know why? Um, Calling Jesus the Son of God is not enough to make him greater than David. Here's why. Adam was called the Son of God in Luke chapter 3. Israel, in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, is called God's firstborn son. And here's where the point is more particular and specific and necessary. In 2 Samuel 7, where God promised that David's son will sit on the throne, this is what God said to David about his son. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So David's son will be God's son. He will be the son of God. Now, who's that talking about? Give me a name. Who's that, who's that talking about? When God is talking to David and he says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Who's that talking about? For those of you, you know, Jesus. Anyone else want to guess? Let me read on the verse. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. The second Samuel seven, verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him. Who's that talking about? Solomon, right? I mean, if it's Jesus, did Jesus ever do wrong? No. Okay, so I tricked you there by not reading the whole verse to make you say Jesus. Don't feel bad if you said Jesus. Um, I set you up that way. But the point here is, the son of David, Solomon, will be the son of God. Is Solomon greater than David? Is, is David going to start, when, when Solomon's born, is he going to start calling Solomon Lord? When, when he put Solomon on a donkey and uh, crowned him king, did he start calling his son Lord? No, but is Solomon the son of God according to Second Samuel seven fourteen? Yes, he's the son of God. So, what does son of God mean now? In the first instance, son of God doesn't mean what we think, namely that 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 person is fully God, divine, should be worshipped. Son of God means God's king, God's representative. Okay, whether it was Adam, whether it's the nation as a whole the Son of God, God's representative on earth, or whether it was Solomon. Son of God in the Old Testament doesn't first refer to deity. It refers to the Messiah, ultimately. I mean, in 2 Samuel, at least. So the Messiah is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Solomon was the Son of God. Why is David calling the capital M, Messiah, Lord, but not calling Solomon, Lord? Not just because the Messiah is the Son of God, but even more importantly... Maybe not more, but equally importantly is the fact that he's not only the son of God, but he is God the son. He's not just the son of God. He's God the son. So let me go back to that verse I read of Isaiah 9. I didn't finish that one either. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's human. And the government will be on his shoulders. And I talked about how he's getting right on the throne of David. Great, son of God. But that's that's not all the verse says. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called... Wonderful counselor. What's the next one? Mighty, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of Peace. peace. Now the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, maybe divine, maybe not. But the two in the middle, you're going to call him mighty God. You're going to call him everlasting father. And then he's going to reign on David's throne. He's not just the son of God, Messiah. He's God, the son. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father, not to say that he's God, the father. But when you've seen me, Jesus says you've seen the the father. He's one with the father. John 1030. I and the father are one. And so here's Jesus point. He's not just the son of God. The Messiah is actually going to be God, the son, and he's going to be the Lord of David. Recognize that he is Lord. That's the point. That's the first point. Recognize that the Messiah is Lord. He is God. He is to be worshipped. He is to be submitted to. He is to be honored. He is not to be questioned and challenged with deception and trickery and hypocrisy, which is what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing here. They were not recognizing Jesus as Lord. Some of you have seen the movie Aladdin. You know, um, in the beginning of the movie, sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but it's 20 years old, so too bad. Actually, this is not really spoiling anything, but um, Princess Jasmine sneaks out of the palace, and she steals an apple because she doesn't know that you actually have to purchase things, right? She's been in the the palace all of her life, and they're about to cut off her hand for stealing. Aladdin saves her, and then they arrest Aladdin, and then she takes off her veil and says, uh, first she says, unhand him, they're not listening, and then she takes off her veil, and then she says, unhand him, you know, let him go, and they recognize that it's the princess, and immediately everyone bows. What did they just do? They recognized royalty. Right. But before they recognize it, they're about to cut off her hand. And the point here is Jesus saying "The, the Messiah, the son of David, is actually Lord. Recognize his authority. Bow down. It's not time to challenge, it's time to submit. So what does this mean for us as a church family? Well, first of all, as a church family, notice Jesus is saying in verse 36, David himself says by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes scripture. So what does this mean for us as a church family? If we want to grow as a healthy church, what should we do as a church family? We need to listen joyfully and carefully to the words of scripture. That's what Jesus is doing here, right? Doesn't it say in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, and didn't David write it? Isn't that what it says in Psalm 110, that this is a Davidic psalm? pay attention to scripture so for us as a church family we need to pay attention to the reading of the bible and the exposition of the bible have you ever heard the term expository preaching before do you know what that word means or that phrase means expository preaching this is what we try to what i try to do here every sunday expository preaching is when the content and intent of the passage controls the content and intent of the message So I try to let the Bible control what I say, the content of what I'm saying and the intention, my goal of my sermon is supposed to be the goal of the text. That's what expository expository preaching is. And if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be filled with expository preaching because we want to know what God says, right? He's Lord. Jesus is head of this church, not me and not any one of us. And so we need to listen to his words. And we need to encourage that, and we need to check the teaching here by the Bible, because not everything I say will be right. I'm not inerrant, but the Bible is. And so we check against Scripture all the time as a church, or else we will not be growing as a healthy church. But what does this mean for us as an individual Christian? You know, when you became a Christian, you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord. So what do you do? If you believe that, if you said that, then guess what? Do it. Show it. If he's Lord, then gladly submit to Jesus in your life. Not grudgingly but gladly submit to him as Lord. Continue to trust him and obey him and ask him to forgive your sins when you disobey him. If you're not a Christian, here's what Jesus is telling you. Submit to Jesus as Lord. He's Lord of your life. Now, you might say if you're not a Christian, well, first of all, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, thank you for coming here. We appreciate your presence. You're always welcome to be here in our Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. But if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you know what? This is my problem with Christianity. In Christianity, the Bible and the church dictate everything that a Christian must believe, feel, and do. Christians are not encouraged to make their own moral choices and decisions or to think out their beliefs or patterns of life for themselves. It's spoon-fed to them, and they're forced into it. In a fiercely pluralistic society, there are too many options, too many cultures, too many personality differences for this approach. We all need to be free to choose our own way of living. This is the only true and authentic life. The only thing we should feel guilty about is not being true to ourselves, to our own chosen beliefs and practices, and our own values and our own vision for life. We should not be forced upon by anyone outside of ourselves if we are to be free. You might be thinking that, and that's why you don't want to be a Christian. It's an ethical straitjacket. It's a spiritual straitjacket. I understand that, but let me respond just briefly with two things before we move on here. First of all, if you get to choose your own truth, then that removes your right for moral outrage. What I mean by that is, aren't there people in the world doing things that you think are wrong? And don't you think they should be stopped, no matter what they believe is right and wrong inside their own heart? Do you believe that, that everyone should literally do whatever they want, whenever they want, and just choose their own values? Well, you say, of course not. They're, they can't be hurting other people. But what if that's part of their values? Then I get to hurt other people. You're telling them that they have to fit your ethical straitjacket now? If you believe that everyone should just choose their own path, then we have no right to be upset or disagree with other people's choices and actions. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is no one is really free, anyways. We all live for something and we all have our ultimate we all find our ultimate value and meaning in life by our own Lord and Master, whether it's approval, achievement, a love relationship, our work, our family, those, are all, those can all serve basically as our Lord and as, and as our Master. Everyone is in a spiritual straitjacket with some Master or Lord. Even the most independent people who want to be free, they're enslaved to their freedom. That's why they can't choose to commit to anything, right? They want to be so free that they don't want to commit to anything. Well, guess what? You're now chained to your commitment to not being committed, Does that make sense? You can't commit because you're committed to not committing. And now you are chained and enslaved to that mentality. The point is, everyone has a Lord and everyone has a master. But Christianity gives you a Lord and master who forgives you and dies for you. So, when you don't listen to scripture carefully and recognize Jesus as a Lord, and when you don't focus on scripture, then you're going to fall into the the trap of religious self-exaltation. So that's point number two. Let's go to point number two. There, if you're taking notes, you do have a handout here. Point number two is, is um, beware. Look at verse 30, 38. The very first word of verse 38 in Jesus' words. Jesus also said in his teaching, what? Beware of who? Beware of the scribes. So beware, that's the key word there. Beware of religious self-exaltation. Self-exaltation, you know, beware could almost mean be aware. right? Be alert. Be aware of this. Why? Because we're not aware of it. Self-righteous exaltation, religious self-exaltation, is very tricky. It's one of the hardest sins to destroy because it's one of the hardest sins to detect. The thing is that righteousness is a good thing, right? We want to be righteous. The problem is the self part. That's a toxic part, when you're self-righteous. You can be reading your Bible. You can be preaching a sermon. You can be doing good. You can be listening to a sermon. You can be trying to seek God, and yet in all of it, still be self-righteous. In the most holy of acts, you can be self-righteous. And what did they do? What did these scribes do to exalt themselves? Look at verse 38. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes. Why would they want to go around in long robes? So they could be what? Recognized, right? They want to get attention. It would be like wearing a priestly or clerical collar or even a tie, if that's the culture of of a specific religious community. So wearing the religious garb so that you're immediately recognized as a, in a place of honor. You know, um, if, you have a doc, if you've graduated with a doctoral degree, you have three stripes on your gown, you want to wear that around, perhaps. Or, or what, you know, the judge has a robe. Nothing wrong with that in, in certain contexts, but the judge has a robe. Imagine the judge wearing the robe to the supermarket, though. You know? Or to church, because so, he wants to be called your honor at church. It's just, the, 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 they're wearing long robes to be held in honor in different places everywhere. They want to be exalted. And then not only is it their robes, look at verse 38 again. And who want what? What do they want in the marketplaces? Greetings. Greetings. Now, it's not just high and bye. They want the honored greeting where if you're sitting down, guess what? You've got to stand up. Some, some, um, so they want, they want to be greeted. In, in Matthew 23, Jesus goes further there. Matthew details more where they want to be called rabbi and teacher and father. And Jesus says, don't let anyone call you rabbi. You only have one rabbi. You only have one teacher. You only have one father. They're your brother. So so these religious people, they want a respect that's formal and surfacey. So you got clothing, you got greeting, but then not only greeting, look at verse 39. What else do they want? What else do they do? They want the front seats in the synagogue. Now for Baptists, it's the back seats, right? It's the back rows. The back row Baptists, right? <laughs> The the best seats in our church building generally tend to be the back seats. Um, You know, the the front is always generally the, the empty seating. But the point is here: they they want the the good seats, the honored seats. Now, in a synagogue, you had basically no seats in the middle. You only had seats along the wall. You had benches along the wall, and then the people stood or sat in the middle during the teaching. And so, if the leaders came, they're like, "What are you doing in my seat? Go sit on the floor." And so they wanted a place of honor. And then they, not only that, they wanted to sit up closer to the front because that's where the ark is, where the scriptures are. And they want to be closer to that because that's the place of honor. And so they wanted the, the, the premier seating. Not only that, look at verse 39. Oh, Not only in the synagogue, but also in the place of honor at the banquets. Social gatherings. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and they say long what? Prayers. prayers. Why do they say long prayers? Just for what? Just for attention, just for show. They, they're showing off with their prayers. They change their voice. Oh, great God in heaven. Right? And you don't talk like that. Why are you talking like that all of a sudden? You know, um, you know they, they might go back to King James English. Not, nothing wrong with King James English. I know some of you brothers, you know. King James, great, great translation. But they might change, you know, just the way, you know, they might show off their theology. They might be praying all their big theological, systematic theological words, or, Lord, like you said in the Greek text, and I start quoting Greek, you know, and what, why? Why are you doing that? To show off to people what you know? That's, that's That's what they were doing. They were praying long prayers for show. And not only that, most indictingly in verse 40, they devour what? Widows' houses. So maybe shady financial practices. They take advantage of vulnerable widows. In that society, when, when a husband passed away, the wife was vulnerable. That's why churches took care of widows, especially that day, because you know with women with retirement now and women in the workforce, it's not as big of a need, though it still could be a need today. It still is a need in many cultures. But in that day, a widow was, was extremely vulnerable. And so the religious leaders, instead of coming to serve them, would actually try to pounce on their inheritance, on, on what, what's been left for them. And they would say, well, it's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. You know, Donate your house. It's for, it's for the Lord and his cause. And they end up becoming homeless. Because, well, at least you devoted it to the Lord. And so Jesus had, no, had zero tolerance for them. You know, read Matthew 23. I'd encourage you to, to get a, a more scathing, full um, recounting of this indictment. Jesus says, I'll I'll quote to you some of Matthew 23. He says, You pay tenth of a mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup, so the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and even impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem like righteous people... But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When you're self-righteous, it's deceiving because part of you believes that you actually are impressing God. That's the problem. Is you actually look at what you've done in your life and you actually think that you have impressed God. The Holy One who knows no sin, whose eyes are too pure to look on, on evil. When we get caught up in our religious cycle, we actually think God should be, I'm really glad PJ's on my team. You know, um, and that doesn't mean we can't please God, but we actually think that He He's impressed by us, and that's not true. Why should you beware of self-righteous self-exaltation and religious self-exaltation? Look at verse forty. Why should you be Why should you beware? What will they receive? Greater condemnation. greater condemnation, harsher punishment. I like the King James here. What's the first word before that last word for King James? Anyone? Is it greater or harsher? Greater? Greater Greater damnation. It's not a word you hear every Sunday anymore, right? Greater damnation. They will be damned by God, condemned, punished. God's wrath poured out for every single self-righteous, exalting act they did for show. Because God sees right through the appearance, right to the heart. And will judge them for it. So what does this mean for us as a church family? It means that we need to not feed a religious self-promotion culture in our church. What does that mean? How do we guard our church from becoming this showy thing? I would say it depends on what we commend. What do you thank God for in this church? When you try to encourage people, what do you encourage them for? I would say commend people for what is biblical, the character of their lives, their service, God's grace working in them when they repent from their sins let 's not get caught up on titles and compliments and badges that make us feel like we 're being true to our tradition or our, our religious community i don 't care you know i mean i don 't ever care that anyone would call me pastor not that it not that it 's bad if you do it's just it's not let's let's not find the honor or if you know I'm giving away a little bit here, and I don't want you to feel bad if, if you've fallen this, but, you know, um, if people say good sermon to me, I just literally try to let it roll off my back like water off a duck's back because I don't know what that means. I mean, I know that – I thank you for your encouragement, but um, if it's not substantial, I, don't, I, I mean, it could be just a compliment, uh, but when someone says, you know, I'm really thankful for how God convicted me of my self-righteousness, then who's getting the glory? God, and I love that. Praise God. Praise God. What stood out to you from the sermon? What did God's word say that, that, that blessed you or encouraged you? Because we, we, we want to commend, we want to encourage people, but we want to glorify God. So everyone who worked at work day yesterday, you served God by God's grace. Thank you for serving us. Guess who worked that into your heart to serve us? God did. And who gets the glory? God. And we thank you for working hard yesterday for those who went to workday. See, we, we commend each other, but we glorify God. And if we criticize each other, which we need to do, we, 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 we focus on sin. We focus on specific sins that we're reproving each other for, which brings us always with God in the middle. So that's what we should do as a church culture. If we want to avoid this um, community performance, we need to commend God's grace, and we need to focus on sin in our criticism and not other secondary preferences. What about for us as Christians? What does this mean for us? If you're going to be aware of self-righteous exaltation, that means you need to be aware of this subtle sin. You need to be careful of comparing your strengths with other people's weaknesses that's what we all do. You look at another dad if you're a dad, I'm a dad if you're looking at another husband, another pastor, whatever your job is you want to look you look at their weaknesses and you look at your strengths and you just kind of stick your chest out and be like, well, at least I'm not like that guy and you're comparing their strength your strengths with their weaknesses. We'll just flip that for a second right Compare their strengths with your weaknesses and you'll get a more realistic picture of what's going on so when you think our church is better than, or our, or my family is better than, or my way is better than, and you start to fill in the blank there, you're on the road to self-righteousness. Or if you say, at least I don't, dot, 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 right? At least I'm not like, and you fill in the blank. What you're doing there is you're comparing your strength with their weakness, and the subtle sin of self-righteousness is creeping in. When you see another sin, when you see another person's weakness, when you see another person's demise, don't gloat or stick out your chest. Mourn over your sin. Look at it as a picture of your sin. There there go I but for the grace of God. And even then, there's other sins in my life right now that I'm committing that I need to ask God for forgiveness more. I I need to be broken over my sin. When I see a brother or sister fall or see a non-Christian indulging in sin and just being so lost, that is a picture of me in my sin. And we need to mourn over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Jesus says. Remember that you're more sinful than you realize. And so focus on personal repentance and thanking God and interceding for those who fall, rather than looking down on them and, uh, and measuring yourself by their failures. So when someone falls, when someone sins, Don't measure measure their sin against your strength. Rather, focus on personal repentance in your life and thank God that God has kept you from that sin, perhaps. Not in a way of sticking yourself out, but then pray for them. God, help them. Grow them. Show them the glories of Christ. You'll either turn out like Saul or David. King Saul and King David were both rebuked by prophets and they both reacted differently. One was was being being aware of self-righteousness. The other one was completely oblivious to it. King Saul was told to, to wipe out a whole people group and, and bring the judgment of God on them, on the Amalekites, and to destroy all their cattle. Well, he didn't destroy all their cattle. And then Samuel comes and says, why didn't you obey the voice of God? And Samuel, and then here's what Saul says. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I did obey the Lord. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the, the Amalekites. And as far as this plunder, this cattle, I, I brought it here to sacrifice to the Lord our God, to the Lord your God, Samuel. And then Samuel replies in 1 Samuel 15, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices more than obeying the voice of the Lord? What's more important, obedience or your rituals? Obedience. Obedience. Don't say you finished the mission of God and you're sacrificing because you love God. You disobeyed God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. commandments. Stop saying you love God and you're honoring God. You're dishonoring God. When you are self-righteous and religiously self-righteous... Here's the danger. You actually use some of the Bible to justify. You use the Bible and you fuzzy it up just a little bit. You fuzzy God's word and you reinterpret his commands to fit and suit your selfish desires and preferences. We all do that. My wife, pray for my wife. She has to deal with me and I'm a pastor who studies the Bible all the time. So I give into this from time to time without even maybe self-consciously doing it. She'll be like, stop getting all theological on me. Don't bring, you know, she could smell it, right? She could smell it like, oh, no, you're just using the Bible now to justify, to theologically, and you know I can't match you theologically, so you're going to use it to justify, and you know, she's right. Her sense is right. There's a danger in knowing the Bible. You could use it to justify your own ways. and That's what Saul did here. I'm obeying God's voice. Well, You could be like that. And so you don't don't take the rebuke. You justify yourself and you excuse yourself. Or you could be like David. When Nathan said, you committed adultery, you murdered Uriah's wife, you're the man. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he writes Psalm 51 about his brokenness before God. I have no excuse. I have no excuse. I've sinned against God. That's repentance. The other is self-righteous, self-exaltation. One Who's receptive to Christ will hear a call to repentance and you know what the call to repentance is It's a sweet invitation to a feast with a dear loved one When they hear the call to repent, it's like it's like a party that they're being invited to it's like Having a terminal disease and then the doctor saying we have found a cure And it just lands on your heart with joy When god calls us to repentance if you're receptive to christ, that's how it feels If you're resisting christ as a religious person the call to repentance is an insult and an assault to your character. And you're offended that you'd be called to repent, and you get defensive, and you make excuses, and you deflect the issue of being called to repentance. And we need to beware of the scribes, and beware of self-righteous exaltation. Instead, we need to confess our sins and temptations. Or like Paul said, glory in our weakness, boast in our weakness, so that who would be exalted? So that Christ would be exalted. So let's rest Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Here's the good news. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone if you're in Christ. God accepts you because Christ died for you and rose for you and gave you his righteousness. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to show off. You don't need to impress anyone. Just love God and enjoy the fact that he accepts you. And when you need to confess it, just keep confessing and growing. You're free. You're free to rest. Isn't it tiring to put the mask on? Day after day, week after week, month after month. The Lord is just saying, put it down. You don't have to be tired anymore. You can relax. It's okay that you're a sinner, not because sin is okay, but because I sent Christ to die for you. So rest in him. If you're not a Christian, I understand that you could see religious people like us as self-righteous. And to be honest, we are from time to time. But irreligious people can be self-righteous too, right? They could say, Look at all those religious, narrow, bigoted people who are close-minded. They're not as tolerant as we are. But isn't that sort of a form of looking down on others? So, if we're going to follow Jesus and avoid the religion trap, we need to, number one, recognize Jesus as Lord. Number two, beware of the scribes and beware of self-righteous, religious self-exaltation. And lastly, and we're going to close with this, number three, give all you are and have to God. Okay, we'll just close with the story. I'll, I'll tell it here and then we'll apply it. This is my shortest point. Give all you are and you have to God. So here's Jesus. He's there just exposing the scribes. And then here's the woman. She puts in two little coins. And these other pe- rich people are putting in hundreds of dollars or, you know, thousands of dollars in our terms today into the offering plate. And then Jesus looks and says, This woman has given more than all of them. Why? Because they gave, it says, or in verse. 44. Why? For they all gave out of their what? Their surplus, their abundance. But she gave out of her what? Her poverty. She put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. There's three ways Jesus highlights this. Out of her poverty, she gave everything she has, all she had to live on. It's holistic. Her whole thing. So here's the question as we close. Do I have to give... Everything well, let's think about it for a second. What is she giving to the temple? What The temple treasury and it's used for what for the temple You know, they have cups of gold and different altars and there's a lot of costs that go with the temple And so you're using the money to further the ministry of the temple. Now. What did the temple do there? That was the place for sacrifices That was the place for atonement before god. That was the place for people to to receive forgiveness That was the place where you received teaching and instruction from the lord And then Jesus comes and says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it. And he was not speaking of the temple of the building. He was speaking of what? His own body. And then Christ dies, rises, goes to heaven. And now where's the temple? Where's the temple today? It's us. We are the temple. So how does this apply to us as a church? We give our money to further the ministry of the temple. Not necessarily the building, but our ministry. What are we doing here as a church? Like John John said earlier when he opened the service, many people have trouble understanding and following Jesus. So what do we do? We share our lives to help others follow Jesus so that they would experience the joy of helping others follow Jesus. Because when more people follow Jesus, what grows? The temple. That's how the temple grows. What's temple work? It's disciple making. It's evangelizing. It's gospelizing. It's teaching and rebuking and correcting and training each other in righteousness so that we grow and that the body grows and that non-Christians hear the gospel and get saved. That's how the temple grows today. And so as a church, what does this mean for our church? It means that we as a church need to steward all of our money, our budget, very carefully and wisely for the furtherance of the temple, the spread of the gospel, and the making of disciples of all nations. We are accountable for every, every penny we spend as a church. And so you give offering, but you're giving to a specific cause, which is why as members we have congregational meetings where you vote. Because you are responsible for where our money goes. Now, question. Okay, PJ, we already took the offering this week. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> um, offering's already done for today. Does this mean that I need to give 100% of all of my assets to the church offering next week to obey this text? How many of you say, I'm going to make you raise your hand here, okay? You've got to say yes or no. How many of you say, yes, I've got to give 100% of my assets into the church offering um, to obey this text? Okay, how many of you say no? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you say no. You're right, no. That's not not to the church offering. But you will either end up like Epaphroditus or Demas. Epaphroditus and Demas were both friends of Paul who were on his missionary team. Epaphroditus nearly died in Philippians 2. He, He went to go help Paul, and he died. He almost died helping Paul. And Paul says this. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. What did he give? His whole what? His whole life, right? His self. He, He would be willing to die for the sake of spreading the gospel. Now, Demas was another missionary with Paul, at least originally. But in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Make every effort to come to me, Timothy, because Demas, our partner, has deserted me because he loved this present world. He fell in love with this present world. He didn't give everything he had. He didn't give it all. He didn't give out of his poverty all he had. He gave out of his surplus. He just cut off whatever was convenient to give to the Lord. You do that, guess what you're in love with? The what? Your money, the world, right? And you do that, you're not in love with Christ. You will either be like Demas or Epaphroditus. In other words, you need to give 100% of all you have to God. 100% 100% of all you are to God, all your money, all your time, all your resources, all your assets, all your talents, all your giftedness, all your abilities, all of your passion, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, right? All for God's glory, all for God's cause. Now, that doesn't mean you give 100% of your assets in the offering next Sunday at our church gathering. It does mean, why, why not? Because you need to have food for the week, right? Right? And you won't be here the next week if you don't, if you give 100% of your assets. Not only that, it says in 1 Timothy 5.8, you need to provide for your family. If you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Oh, so that means I get to keep some for myself. No, 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 no. Why are you providing for your family? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might wash her with the water of the word. word. Why do you provide for your wife? To gospelize her. It's temple work. What about fathers? Do not not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in what? The nurture and discipline of the Lord. Guess what that is? Temple work. So why do you keep money to provide for your house? Because it's God's money. And that's God's ministry at your house. And if you don't do it there, you're sitting against God. But that's still temple money. Whatever you do, all of your minutes of your week, all of your pennies in your bank account are all God's. Just because you don't give 100% here doesn't mean you give it all, You don't give it all to God. You're not free to spend any of your money in a way that doesn't glorify God. You are bound to glorify God. So what am I saying? Use your money to sanctify your spouse, to raise your children, to be hospitable and have people over to your home, to bless others. What I'm saying is make God-centered connections. Every penny you spend, is it tied to the Great Commission somehow? Is it tied to obeying God somewhere in the bible it should it has to that's what god's calling for here And they're saying pj you're going beyond the text well i don't think i am um but mark 8 34 to 37 what does jesus say if anyone wants to come after me he must what deny himself take up his cross and what follow me for whoever saves his life will what lose it but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So give generously and give your whole life to God. Why? Because God owns you. God created you. And not only that, God's your father. He's going to provide for you. Hasn't he provided for you? Hasn't he provided for your every need? Doesn't he give so generously? I mean, he makes us managers of his gift. We are his servants stewarding his gifts. We need to fight the temptation to hoard. Because we're in love with this present world. If you hoard, you know what you might be believing deep down? That God is stingy. That God is an absentee or irresponsible father. Or that God is careless. Or deep down you might believe God won't really provide for me. That's why I can't give. Or you might believe, you wouldn't say this out loud, but you might believe that spiritually you're an orphan. That you don't have a a father in heaven. You might say you have a father in heaven, but you don't really believe that he's going to care for you. And that's why if God's not going to meet my needs and I give, give this away, how are my needs going to be met? I can't, so I've got to hold on to it. Well, you're functionally believing that you're an orphan and that God won't provide, but he will. God always provides. So let's give of our whole lives. Let's give everything we are and everything we have to God. Lastly, to the non-Christian here, Jesus doesn't want your money. I know that when you, read, you watch TV, sometimes you see these TV preachers and they're saying, you know, give a little bit more money and they roll around with really expensive cars and fly private jets. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your soul. I said that one time closing a service and like almost all my, the members of our church, their jaws dropped because I said, you know, um, don't give your offering today. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your soul. He wants all of you. And everyone's like, whoa, Like, you can't say that to non-Christians. But it's true, right? He wants your soul. He wants all of you. He wants to forgive you of all your sins. He wants to free you from the enslavement to sin, to other masters. And he wants to give you and provide for you all of of your needs, especially himself. So here's the good news. Who gave all of himself? Jesus did. Who recognized the Father's words and obeyed it? Jesus did. Who didn't live for selfish self-exaltation but lived to exalt God and, and bless others? Jesus did. And that's the good news. If you're not a Christian, the good news is that Jesus came to die for your sins and rise from the dead. He gave all he had for God's glory and for your good so that if you would repent, and this is what God's telling you to do this morning, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. And he will forgive you of your sins. He will free you from your sins. And he will give you eternal life and his Holy Spirit who will begin to transform your life. Let's pray. Father, please save us from the religion trap. Save me from the religion trap. Save us from that trap. That trap is always here. It doesn't go away after a sermon. And so we ask for your help. Help us to keep continually recognizing Jesus as our Lord. Help us to continually beware of the subtlety of our self righteousness in all of our hearts that looks down on others. And exalts ourselves, Lord. So dangerous. And you know our guilt. You know my guilt, even this week in this regard. Forgive us. Cleanse us and change us. And Lord, help us to give all that we are and all that we have, not grudgingly, but because we believe that you're our Father and you provide our needs and you've given us Christ and everything. Uh, It is more blessed to give than receive. And so help us, Lord, to give our whole life to you with joy and gladness by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for our non-Christian friends here that even this morning you would give them the gift of faith and repentance to know and trust in you and be free and forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.